This week on FX Guide TV. We look at the visual effects work behind Andrew Stanton's John Carter. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and welcome to FX Guide TV. Before we start the show this week, I just want to flag a huge new announcement here at FX Guide. We are looking for your support to extend the work we do and provide even more VFX coverage worldwide. We want to do two major new things. Firstly, increase our trade show coverage, starting with a full day of live FX Guide TV from NAB. And secondly, provide you with a special FX Guide iPad app. But to do this, we need your help. The NAB internet connections alone from the show floor are incredibly expensive and we want to do a full multi-camera shoot with live interviews and podcast demos. Plus, we want to make you the best iPad app ever. We have some great plans for this, including full offline flight mode browsing. But all this costs money. Please go to this URL on the screen and become an FX Guide supporter. There are different levels you can contribute at and each level has some great support rewards from exclusive videos to hats, jackets, and much more. We really appreciate your support. Now, FX Guide is 13 years old and it has never been stronger, but there is more we think we can do and more we think you guys might want. Many of you have already commented how much more we have been posting, and this is due to the insider program we started a year ago. But now we want to expand that. And to those who have already helped with our initial insider program, a huge thank you from all of us here. So please support us, allow us to continue to have very few ads and be primarily user-supported content. Thank you. But now on to this week's show where we turn our focus towards CineSight in London, who created the city of Zadunga as part of their work on John Carter. Zadunga is the mile-long rusty metal tanker that crawls like a myriapod across the surface of Mars. The interior houses a dirty, bustling, crowded city, just part of the 831 shots CineSight did not counting the full stereo conversion of the film, which was shot not digitally, but on 35mm film. When I saw you, I believed that something new can come into this world. You are John Carter of Earth? Yes, ma'am. Congratulations on the film. It looks remarkable. Thank you. It was uh, a long time in the making. The film is obviously taking place uh, in, a, in, a, in a different world, a strange set of sort of uh, different worlds. And I wanted to focus on that idea of uh, creating a digital environment because you did an enormous amount of really interesting work creating very believable digital environments. Is that something that um, is now a well-solved problem, or did this present new challenges? Well, I think it's like with everything in visual effects. You know, there's certain things, you know, tricks of the trade, but as the scope gets bigger and bigger and the scale gets big, I mean, these, and this was big scales. These were, we, these were whole environments in terms, of, in terms of cities, in terms of, you know, in a different planet, in a different world. So really the challenges now become, as you get, they're, they're much richer, the environments, and much more believable which then the challenges become, can you render them? How, how big are they? You know, it's, it, it's just more technical challenges in terms of how to actually get them through the pipeline. 
it's not the case that we can get away with a matte painting when you have shots that sweep past sort of moving cities or drilling yeah. cities. It's, uh, but there must be concept art at the outset. How much sort of uh, was the look defined at the concept art stage? There were, were definitely nods to what it would look like in terms of, of, of the use of colours and things like that and the size of it, um, and which led us to sort of the original design. And it carried on throughout because we had challenges where, well, what do you see from that point of view? So you don't want to go and, and build something and render the whole thing. So throughout the entire process, there was stills, look development, um, and it was, you know, it was quite significant. We were on it for two years. And it's, it really sort of takes most of the departments, doesn't it? Because, I mean, for example, a really key part of this is, um, say, uh, effects stuff for dust and, and atmosphere and, and lighting mm. properties. Significant. I mean, it's all of those things that you wouldn't naturally call out that with your eye that makes something very believable. So, I mean, it touched every one of our sort of skill sets and expertise from, you know, all the way through modeling, texturing, lighting, matte painting. Um, just for just from effects standpoint for the for the dust for the city for the moving city that's called Zadanga that was about 15 man years of TD work wow. and it's not like you look at it and you're like oh it's in some big sandstorm it's just the sort of interaction of the moving city as it's mining I guess the other thing about a moving city is that uh, there are lots of shots looking out because it's there's oh. almost like a boat really in a sense isn't it yeah yeah, it's um, the other big challenge also of the moving city was the sort of the engineering of the legs. I mean, that was a good sort of that process in terms of concepting and then to moving stills and the shape and the size and how everything moved. That took a good year to get sorted. And it needs to have this complete believability because it's obviously a fantastical world, but mm. we need to kind of anchor it in something for the audience. Yes, and, and, and Zadanga was anchored in sort of a, a mining type of environment. That's, that was the whole purpose of it. It's sort of the city where the, where the baddies are, and it kind of, it's not constantly moving, but it moves and it drills and it mines as it goes along, and it tears up all of the earth. Did the actors have much to work with on set, or was it really just a giant green screen environment? For the most part, there were, it was giant green screen, but there were set pieces. Uh, and initially, I think when we did the breakdown and we're looking at it in terms of uh, breaking it down for the bid and for the budget, it was sort of set extension. But it became much more about uh, a lot more CG and, and more green screen. But there was, there was definitely for the foreground, there was some set stuff, but uh, the bulk of it is fully CG. Interestingly, I guess, I mean, maybe from my point of view, um, it was shot on film. Yeah. Never any consideration of wanting to have that digitally captured? Well, I think, you know, what's interesting because it has so many visual effects in it, over 2,000 visual effects in it. Um, and Andrew Stanton, who's, you know, from Pixar, and he's done, it was his first live action film, and he did talk about the fact that he wanted to make sure that he actually got the experience of shooting something on film. And he just, you know, everybody thoroughly, you know, sort of, uh, engaged in it and the other challenge was obviously it was shot anamorphic as well so when you're dealing with sort of all of the the tracking and things like that it had it had a lot of challenges that it presented but he really wanted to shoot on film for the experience of shooting on film. So I'm glad you brought up the anamorphic thing because mm. uh, in many respects what I, you seem to have captured so well is what I might call imperfections but in, in many senses adds enormous realism the things about the anamorphic on film that mm. sort of are signatures and they, they really add realism to these uh, effect sequences. 
Yeah, our technical teams obviously find it very challenging because there's the whole thing with the aberration, some of the anamorphic lenses and the repeatability. But because the, the end result is so beautiful, it's, it's challenges that you're, you know, you, you're willing to overcome because it looks so fantastic. And what about the issue of uh, stereo? Hmm. Very, very interesting. We actually also did the entire conversion on John Carter. Well, uh, in the end, there was another house that did some of the shots in terms of the process. And, and, and prior to doing John Carter, we had actually d done Pirates, which was shot native. And they had debated as to whether or not to shoot native, but Andrew was just getting started, and his focus was really just on the story and on the film. Well, and on film the would have precluded doing uh, stereo because you couldn't really shoot film stereoscopically. Yeah, no, but they were, that, that's one of the debates they were doing. So I think he, he, he very, very much put his foot down and said how he wanted to do it. So it led down a conversion path. Um, and there were a lot of challenges there in terms of uh, how to get the result. I mean, the end result looks beautiful. Bob Whitehill, who's the stereographer at Pixar, worked with our uh, stereographer, Scott Willman, and it looks fantastic. But technically, there were quite a few challenges there. I think Bob Whitehill worked on um, Up with Pixar, which I think yeah. is probably the most successful uh, 3D stereo film I've ever seen. It really yeah. is. Uh, so that's great to know that he Have you there. seen this in stereo? I haven't seen it in stereo, no. Right. I think, I think you'll find that actually it will set a new benchmark for conversions. Most of the people that have seen it in terms of, even from the Disney execs point of view, people that didn't know that it was converted thought it was actually shot stereo. I mean, the execution is fantastic. And Bob's eye, creatively, um, it's, it's very easy to watch and it's lovely. He's, he just has a very, you know, him and Scott working together, the end result was fantastic. Bob seems to be very good at adding stereo as a narrative device to help tell a story mm. rather than an effects device to get a wow factor. Absolutely, I think, and I think that's what makes it look so fantastic. And for me, it was our first stereo conversion. And um, we're, we're not in the market of sort of uh, converting loads of film. It's very much at the top end of the market. And what I found most interesting was that Bob, before he had seen anything that had been shot, just purely off the script, had written a depth script for the entire movie, all based on the narrative and what the focus should be and how it would play. And you can really tell that in the end result. But I don't want to harp on it like I've got some kind of axe to grind, but <laughs> if you were doing stereo conversion, you'd also kind of like it to not have film grain because of exactly the same problems that they hit uh, when they were trying to do, for example, in Hugo, the mm. old footage with grain, which is grain doesn't mm. work very well in stereo. Did you yeah. have any issues with the film or did you just have to degrain it all? Or? No, we didn't, but you have to remember also that um, we, have, we have quite a few uh, image experts on our teams in terms of color management and all of that. And we had a whole team of people that dealt with all of that. And I think that's one of the reasons also we were so successful doing that because technically we know how to, to, to deal with all of that to, to get a good end result. There were, some, there were some big challenges up front, technically. Is the film... Uh, filmic in the sense that it, you feel like it still looks like film, even though it's now stereoscopically converted and stuff? I mean, do you think that that's been hailed through in terms of that style when you're watching it? or do you? Because a lot of people say, well, I want to be immersed in it. That's why I'm stereo. Maybe some mm -hmm. of those film things work against the immersion process. I don't know. I have to say on the pieces I've watched in terms of the whole yeah. scenes, you're actually just watching the film and you're not even thinking, I'm watching stereo, I'm not in film. It just has a richness. It's lovely. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic to watch. I can't, you know, it, it's not like you, you start to look at it and you think, you know, initially when you're looking at it, you're looking at it with a bit of a critical eye. But like with anything, then all of a sudden you're not paying attention to it and it just, you're watching the story. 
I imagine the advantage of doing this such high-end effects work at mm. the same place that you're doing that seroconversion does allow you to uh, facilitate your own work, presumably pass mats along, pass other stuff along. Was it like that or did you kind of finish the shots and then convert? Do you know what's really interesting on that question is, of course, that's the assumption that we made as well in terms of we ended up calling, here's our mono team, here's our stereo team. And because we were in-house and thought, okay, well, we can pass all the things over, it actually became a problem because people weren't disciplined enough about how things were being passed over and what was being hand handed over and when the cameras were being set. So we had to completely change our paradigm about how it happened and then realized for the, for out of, out of the 856 shots that Cinesite did visual effects on, uh, but Cinesite did over 1,500 almost 16, well, when you count the omits, over 1,900 shots. Wow. For stereo, out of those, out of the 856, there were 130 that were classified as either all CG or where the stereo was going to be done by the mono team with right eye renders and things like that. But there was, a, um, in the end, a real collaboration between the teams. But the biggest challenge, to be honest with you, was the fact that you've got artists in terms of the comp that are used to using tricks to get them to, to, to get that realism, to get it looking really well. And it really it, it it really causes you a major, major problem in the stereo side. So the last shots to get uh, converted for stereo were actually some of the first shots we were doing in visual effects and it was like because they had to be sort of, you know, they had a lot of those tricks in them. And we, we tried to be very good about being disciplined about you know, once a month going through and reminding all the teams, don't forget we're converting this, don't forget this. But then you get caught up in the whole process of just getting the film complete. So it, it certainly was very challenging. Now the film, uh, because it's in a different world, uh, invites very different looks. Did you kind of nail the look at the stage that you're working on the shots or did you anticipate a strong DI grade afterwards? That was, that was another interesting challenge because it was um, Andrew's first um, live action film. His, his uh, familiarity with DI and the process wasn't that great and up front we were getting a little bit more involved in sort of grading and color bibles than probably traditionally we would get involved. With Pixar we know that they tend to like to get stuff right out of the render. Like they, mm -hmm. they, that's a philosophy in house with Pixar. This isn't mm -hmm. something that um, should concern you except for the director probably has that inherited. So is there a sense that you were trying to get it more sort of visually correct creatively earlier or yes. less reliance on DI? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, Andrew, I mean, the team at Pixar, I mean, wow, there's some very talented, creative people. I mean, you know, it's no wonder they're so successful because it's always all about the story. Um, and, and, and the transition between what was happening when we were getting ready to shoot versus after it was shot, we were starting to get through the process. It was, you know, help working together to understand how does Andrew normally work at Pixar versus what you have to do when you're working in live action and dealing with shots. So there was very much a, um, there were a couple of guys, there was Ryan and Bill, who in terms of colors were very much setting, they were using it as a, an emotional palette, right. which is what they do at Pixar. So if something's happening and it's meant to be, you know, uh, sad or whatever, they, they, they deal with it in terms of color. So they very much set the palettes up front in terms of the different environments and the different cities and what, you know, like Helium, which is the good city, it's all blue, and Zadanga, which is, you know, the baddies, it's all sort of, you know, red flags and just very dusty and concrete. So yeah, that was very much part of the process. It sounds like there's an interesting blend between your incredible creative and technical prowess and also some Pixar DNA in that sense of how that came together. 
I have to say it was an amazingly rewarding process for our team. There were some bits along the way where you, you, you just tr trying to figure out how, how to get there. But equally, Andrew's producer, um, Lindsay Collins, I mean, she was very, there was just an incredibly collaborative uh, environment. And Andrew was just, you know, our teams love working with Andrew. He was always very honest. For him, it was always about the story, always about what he wanted to focus on and not about, hey, that's a cool visual effect. It was never about that. So unlike a Pixar film, obviously you get a lot of action sequences, which mm. necessitated destruction pipeline and a lot mm -hmm. of stuff to do with, um, uh, I said already, the effects stuff for the environments. Yeah. But um, tell me about some of the complexity in terms of how you did uh, the destruction sequences, fight sequences and that sort of big stuff, because uh, it is visually very complex yeah. and you're creating everything. It must have do you have like a Houdini pipeline or is it in-house Well, tools? we had two different pipelines, which was challenging. In terms of for the destruction, it was um, Maya in-house tools, pull down it, quite, quite a few. And it was quite difficult because, you know, it, the pipeline went on for a year. That work went on and you didn't start seeing shots coming out to the end, you know, that was closer to the end of the post schedule. And that was always a bit of a, you know, um, having to go back in and redo things. And then there was another, there's a whole other section in, in the film that's called Thern. Or nanotechnology, and that was all purely Houdini, and that was um, that was very challenging. It was all completely, you know, the systems that were that were built. It was like, okay, can we get it rendered? Can we do any of that? So that we had two separate uh, effects teams. So we had a Houdini and a. And on that second stuff was, I mean, how quickly did you arrive at the designs to then mm. implement them? Interestingly enough, we always thought from the beginning, oh gosh, this is going to be challenging. And, and we kind of had a lot of sort of, oh, does that work? Does that not work? And then Andrew was very clear and Nathan in the beginning going, okay, it must be something that's sort of kind of like Lego. So it's part of itself and it grows on itself, but you can always see its DNA. You know, that he, he was very consistent about that. You can always see Thern DNA. And so when we cracked the look of the Thern DNA, you know, seven months into it or whatever, it was like, yes, we've got it. And then it was like, right, so now how do we make it move? Because there's a whole room that forms out of the Thern, and wow, that was, um, there were some moments there we thought, gosh, are we ever gonna get it rendered? And we'd have to take whole weekends and tell everybody, nobody else can have shots on the farm, we've gotta get the room rendered. Is that for the rendering or the Sims? Because there were some serious Sims in this as well. Yeah, some very serious Sims. We, well, we just had, and it was the first time, you know, we've used Houdini before, but to that level, in terms of, of, of what was happening. And, you know, we had some very talented people. I mean, Richard did more of the technical stuff and, and, um, and Nikki, who was more on the creative TD side for the Houdini teams. But it was very difficult trying to get to the bottom of it because I'd have all of our technical guys coming in and i go, okay, what is the issue here? Is it the caching? Is it this? Is it that? And, you know, it was a lot of programming. So every time, you know, could we repeat it? Could we do, could we do this? It was, um, it was some of the most challenging work. So presumably on a project of this size, you're going to do a software freeze kind of at the outset. Yes. But is that ever tempting to crack? Because, I mean, if you're freezing two years out, you don't get, yeah. you know, you must see Houdini version 12 or something appearing and yeah. going, gosh, if only we had that. Yeah. But we did. We, it, Houdini was the one thing that actually we did do an upgrade in the middle of it. But um, one of the things that we did do, which again was a challenge for the first sort of nine months, was um, our lighting and shading pipeline and it was just like oh but we had to make the changes because it was sort of we knew we were going to have things of such huge scale that we had to deal with things of different levels of detail and about you know how to render and what, what, what where were the textures what were the size of the textures there were a lot of really technical challenges in terms of making sure you could actually get it through the pipeline 
Excellent. Well, look, it's a terrific film and, and yeah. amazing work. It just, I love this. Thank uh, you. Thank you. And, and I've got to say, like, I was slightly skeptical of just how uh, much we would buy into this world, and I'm completely immersed. So oh, thank you. Good. Well, I hope you go and see it in stereo because I have to say, it is fantastic in stereo. It's a, it's a, a really enjoyable experience. We did not cause this, but this very night. And don't forget, if you like this podcast, you may also like our other podcasts, such as the FX podcast, the VFX show, and our digital cinematography podcast, The RC. In two weeks, we will start our NAB coverage, which should be a cracker kicking off with some amazing exclusives. But next week, we get hands-on again in Nuke and Ocular with senior compositor Alex Fry. So until then, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.